Inspired by my own journey with mental health, I founded Girls Talk, our own safe space where we share, listen, and support each other. So get cozy and join me, Adjua Burr, for some much-needed Girls Talk. Today, I'm thrilled to have my dear friend Chelsea Leyland on the podcast. Chelsea is a DJ, cannabis, and epilepsy activist, filmmaker, and the co-founder of women's health platform Looney. Chelsea and I have had a wide-ranging conversation about her new documentary, Sisters Interrupted, her pregnancy journey, and so much more. I don't even know where to begin, babe. I watched your incredible, moving and powerful documentary, Sisters Interrupted. For anyone who hasn't watched the documentary, can you tell our amazing community a bit about the film? Oh, well, thank you for saying that. So... It's really a tale of of two sisters. And I think, you know, the narrative became more of a love story between myself and my sister Tamsin. And the focus is on epilepsy and I think how that can, condition can uh, affect people differently. And I have epilepsy and uh, my sister has a more severe form of the condition. And I've been really fortunate in that about six years ago, well, actually longer now, eight years ago, was introduced to medical cannabis and cannabinoids and started using it as um, an anticonvulsant medicine. And it allowed me to wean off all of my pharmaceuticals and I'm still seizure free as a result. And not to say that medical cannabis is a solution for everyone with epilepsy because it's it's not, but my family's been fighting for many, many years to try and gain access for my sister Tamsin, but because of the policies in the UK and the fact that she lives in full-time care, which is run by the NHS, our public healthcare system, we aren't able to even get her the opportunity to trial this medicine. So it's obviously been a really long journey and so much has happened along the way. The narrative of the documentary changed drastically. Like originally it was going to be a sort of deep dive into the landscape of medical cannabis. Wow. And we set yeah. out filming physicians and neurologists and epileptologists and politicians. And sort of halfway into the project, one of our producers just turned around and just said, you don't have a film unless you make the film about your two sisters, you, you know, you and your sister. So it, it sort of changed quite dramatically from being what I originally wanted to make which was a a more of a kind of educational film and Tamsin and I would just be characters within that to a film that really became about the two of us so that was quite challenging because I I I didn't make a documentary yeah because you have to like I mean there's so much vulnerability in that film and I think I wasn't expecting that as much as the film advocates for providing equal access to epilepsy treatment in the form of cannabis like you said I found it to be such a beautiful and vulnerable love letter to your sister Tamsin Um, and I've known you for years but I think it was so lovely to see this side of you that I, I didn't really know so could you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with your sister? Yeah and it you sort of like hit on a I guess vulnerable sort of note that you know so many of of my friends and friends that you know old old friends that you know perhaps like I went to school with from age like 13 or never really knew this side Mm. 
of my life and that is because it was I think so difficult for so long that I, I just actually for many many years couldn't even talk about it or address it and I remember growing up often like leaving conversations um, when people started talking about their siblings because it, it was just so painful for me and I think not having perhaps what I considered to be you know like a, a sort of normal um, sibling dynamic and so in a way it was you know obviously a very cathartic project but it is quite it was quite a dramatic shift to go from having something in my life that was really really like difficult to talk about to then making um a documentary and i i think you know, i use the word cathartic because it it it's very it was very i think healing and for tamsin like she loved the whole experience she just felt like Did she? A movie star. <laughs> it was really yeah. sweet yeah and um you know, I think with our relationship, it's um, obviously like any sort of sibling dynamic, it's gone through so many phases. You know, I think the sort of reality of our dynamic was, you know, Tamsin is my older sister. And there was a moment in time where I became her older sister and sort of took, yeah. her, you know, just mentally in terms of like, you know, she didn't develop in, in the same way and um, almost sort of was was stuck in time and, and I continued to grow. But we have such an amazing bond and it I you know I I really owe I think Caroline the director that of you know capturing our special relationship because there's so much humor and it is perhaps a little different from you know other people's relationships but it's it's we have so much love and there's so many lols and it's just a sort of ridiculous um you know, kooky dynamic that we just share in a language that we speak together and no one else really speaks our, our language. It was an honour, actually. It felt like we were given access to something so intimate and special and unlike many kind of family relationships and, and dynamics. How has having a sister with severe epilepsy and mild autism influenced your own personal growth and understanding of inclusion? that's a great question I I think I mean I guess when you grow up in that environment it's sort of being or having that like inclusive mindset I think particularly when it comes to people that you know have um, specific disabilities is is like second nature Um, I actually went to a primary school in London growing up that um, you know accepted uh, kids with with different conditions and disabilities and um, which I always think is is so beautiful. I mean, I think at the time I, I took it for, for granted, you know, just uh, Tamsin was there for a few years before she became so sick that she had to then go somewhere else. But just, I think, giving other children that opportunity to just normalize it. And I think, obviously, if you grow up in that environment at home, you do have a heightened sensitivity to it. You know, mm. I, um, I think that's what's so beautiful about children. It's like, if you, if you, expose them to just like different things and it it does just become like your normal reality and I think even now it's funny because I I sometimes come across people that went to that primary school and I notice that they're just so much more like receptive and 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 sort of um empathetic to, to to people that like are struggling you know with with different disabilities so I think in in that sense like I I've always had um a sensitivity to it you know I always want to make other people who are um 
you know, even if it's the carer feel supported and whether that's just like getting into like a lift and helping someone. I think it's, I think what, as a result, it's just that feeling of like, it's, it's empathy in a, in a different Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. You just know what it's like, um, to, to, to suffer with, with something and how, um, how much harder things can be. So I, I, I think it's just, um, as I say, like it, it's second nature. And I, I often think like how, how can we make the rest of the world like that? You know, and I think it does come down to, it's always education, isn't it? And it's, it's exposing children at a young age so that they can just be a little softer and a little kinder and a little bit more open to people's differences. Do you think that sensitivity and that understanding was something that led you to protect your own story and that one of Tamsin's, like when you were growing up, like, was it about kind of shielding her and yourself or was it, was it just more so a kind of growing up thing where just being private and do you know what I think I think it was a combination yeah. I think as a child as a teenager like all we want to do is fit in yeah and all we want to do is feel like everyone else and I think from such an early age it always felt I still feel that way and I'm you know 36 year old woman now I always I've always had this feeling where I don't quite fit in mm. it's like I'm always somehow on the periphery and even if I um, fitting it seemingly fitting in I, I just internally don't feel like that and maybe everyone feels like that I don't know but I always felt different from everyone else and um, you know when I sort of blow out the the candles on the cake from from you know as early as I can remember my wish has always been that Tamsin would be well and I, I just sort of wanted that and maybe in the last sort of few years of my life and I think certainly kind of working on this project maybe it's it, I've, I have, I've kind of entered into a, a stage of acceptance and, and that's yeah. been helpful and and perhaps like you know um healing to to have that acceptance but I think also and I notice this is not just whether you have um you know a sibling or a family member that's not well I, I notice people do this a lot of the time with with grief with mental illness you know I have, I have a friend who who lost his um father to, to suicide during COVID and I, I always speak about this with him which is like sometimes we just don't want to expose other people to our reality because we feel like they can't handle it and we can't then handle and sit with their response because it's like do you know what I mean we're trying to sort of manage our own emotions and so then to to tell someone oh you know especially I mean now it's different but especially you know at the age of like 16 or even 21 to tell people like oh you know I have a sister who's severely epileptic she lives in full-time care and she has autism it was like the response that I would get I just I felt too sensitive to then hold their response, their awkward response. And you know how English people are, like the most awkward people in the world. <laughs> so it's sort of sometimes easy. It's like, you know what? I'm going to save you the embarrassment or or kind of that awkward moment. And I'm just going to skip over it because it's just easier for everyone. Um, and that's, I think, in a way, how we find our people in life, right? Because it's like, sometimes you feel a sensitivity from someone and you're like, ah, you're you're like me, you know, you're, and one of the the odd ones out or you're one of the the like highly sensitive people and I, I feel like you can hold this and I'm just going to share you know I'm going to share it with you oh 100% I mean there's such a knowing it's like I always I can feel it I'm I gravitate towards someone who understands you know mental illness the way that I do you know it's like there's a bond even if we're complete strangers I'm free you're a freak exactly it's just gonna be a bit easier (laughs) I loved what you said at the end of the documentary about 
Tamsin being a, like, you know, one of the purest souls that you've ever met. And you really get that energy as a viewer from start to finish that she is. Um, what has been the most significant life lesson you've gained from your relationship with your sister? I think that, and this is something that I think took, took years, but I think that Tamsin, because she is that sort of purest form of, 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 of a, that a person can be, you know, just like when we think of what the soul is, you know, or like our, our higher self, she's just, she is just that. And I think, um, you know, she's, she's not trying to be anything, but just who she is. And it, I think it's just like, she obviously is the most vulnerable at all times. And I think that she has taught me that leading with vulnerability is, is, is really a superpower. And I think something that I have really led with, you know, I guess for the, the last like six years of my life. And I think it's, it's how we make other people feel less alone. It's how we support other people. It's, it's, it's how I think healing comes about in communities. Um, so I think, I think that's what she's taught me is, is, is that vulnerability is, is our superpower maybe. Mm -hmm. How is she at the moment? What has she watched the film? So she, we were hoping that she was maybe going to be able to make it um, to the screening in London, but unfortunately she she hasn't been very well recently. So I know that the film was just sent to her last week. I think she's, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to get the full feedback on how she feels, but she she really loved the experience. I think for her, just, um, I think she loved performing. I think as, you know, you picked up on, and it was really nice to hear you say that, that she was able to just talk in a way that perhaps she doesn't normally feel that she can mm -hmm. maybe when she's like around her family or, you know, we're often sort of telling her what to do and, you know, nagging her or whatever. But it was really nice that she was able to just, I think, flow and talk about the things that she was interested in. And she has so much to say. And obviously each day is, is just really governed by her well, you know, well-being and, and she has good weeks and bad weeks, but I'm hoping that she just feels like a total movie star because that's how she felt when we were filming it. <laughs> I love that. And what was it like having your family involved? Was it was it kind of a cathartic experience for them or? It's an interesting question because, and I always wondered what people's take was after watching the film because obviously my dad is in it. Um, and I think I'm quite like my father in that we are sort of, we're quite strong characters, I think. Yeah. We deal with our. You're so parents. similar. <laughs> it's funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think we we sort of deal with our pain in with fight, like that's how we go through life. Um, you know, perhaps like even sort of you know with our our vulnerability and is masked with a very sort of hard shell. And um and my father has really dedicated his life to fighting for my sister fighting to keep her alive fighting with doctors always trying to you know find the best solutions for her um and um and that's how he copes with it and that's how I cope with it and my mother is 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 just much more um vulnerable I guess and mm. she just finds it incredibly difficult and she sits with a lot of guilt which is you know unwarranted but that's just how she is as as a mother and she really didn't want to be involved in the documentary. She didn't want me to make the documentary and um, Interesting. just didn't want to be a part of it. So you see her, I think, very briefly, but 
that was quite difficult because I always sort of felt like I was doing something wrong throughout the six years of making it and I think that's why I've had so many mixed feelings about it because I I didn't want to upset her she didn't like that we were filming Tamsin she didn't think it was fair on Tamsin she didn't like having any cameras like at home you know um but she left me a card actually she, she was away when I went back for the screening and she wrote me a really sweet card recently and I think just seeing how people have responded to it and particularly people within the epilepsy community I I, I think now she feels really proud and it's it's really sweet and she she addressed for the first time why she found it so difficult so you know it's it wouldn't be sort of normal I think it's family stuff's complicated isn't it and we all yeah and you know that's also I think again like culturally like very, there's someone who's lived in America for so long that it's very English like English people don't it's we I think our culture is a little bit more private in that sense and um you know it's that kind of stiff upper lip we don't really talk about our personal Oh, 100%. And I think within our generation, I think we're continuously fighting against that, you know, because I'm still very prone to just like, keeping my feelings to myself, you know, as someone who advocates to not do that, it comes Mm -hmm. very naturally to me to just be like, stiff up a lip and like, keep it to myself. But it's interesting to hear you say that, because, you know, I think, if yeah if i if i'm honest i i i find the documentary absolutely excruciating to watch i was planning actually on not yeah. watching yeah screen i mean i couldn't even it. imagine watching like <laughs> i yeah it's just hard to watch yourself when you're and also obviously having something that that is so personal and i always try to explain to people it's like it's not like i've sort of been in in a movie and played like a really cool sexy role and sort of <laughs> can yeah. come and watch myself be a whole different character it's it's something that is really exposing and you can't help but look at yourself and be like oh god why do I do that oh god I'm so cringe it's just like yeah <laughs> you know, it's difficult um what do you hope viewers will gain from the film in terms of epilepsy advocacy and understanding the condition better our goal I think is to continue to eradicate the stigma I think that surrounds epilepsy um you know, ep- epilepsy is a, a heavily stigmatized condition. You just have to look at the history to sort of really, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not forgetting that people thought epilepsy was contagious for many, many years. Um, you know, there were laws put in place. You couldn't marry someone with epilepsy. Um, you know, they used to lock people with epilepsy away, um, thinking that they were possessed by the devil. And, you know, that. so, it, I mean, it's, it's really had a crazy, crazy history. And I think, you know, you look at someone having a seizure and it, it's terrifying. It's, it's very, very, very scary to watch. So I think, you know, there's, there's, there's giving the condition a voice, I think growing up. Um, and when I was diagnosed, I felt like there was no one to look to who was talking about it. There was no one sort of saying like, Hey, look, I'm doing something normal and, uh, with my life and I have this condition too. So, um, I think, you know, giving representation to this this marginalized community and condition that affects so many people. Um, and I think also just trying to get people to to be a little bit more empathetic. You know, it, it's easy to pass someone on the street lying on the floor and just say, oh, that, that person's a drug addict, that person's an alcoholic, you know, and even then we should be, I think, trying to help help them. But a lot of the time, you know, and certainly in my life, I've seen people having seizures on pavements in airports a lot of the time mm. 
And if that was you, you know, how, how would you want to be treated? You know, if you were by yourself and you were lying on the pavement having a seizure, you would hope that someone kind would walk past and just hold your head and support your head. So I think, you know, there are just like these little small things that um, that we can do to to just bring more awareness to the condition, um, break, break down stigma. Um, and, you know, I think ultimately, you know, our, our goal is, is to hopefully through tugging on the heartstrings, try to help shift policies. So cannabis for medical purposes is legal in 38 states in the US. And obviously the laws are different in the UK. Where is the UK at with legalizing cannabis for medical purposes? So it's fairly convoluted in that um, we legalized medical cannabis in in 2018 um, for medical medicinal use. And we were uh, working on the documentary at the time and it, it honestly just felt like such a huge win. It was like best best day of our lives. We were so happy. We really felt like we had sort of contributed to this this fight. And obviously this is this is a battle that um you know, activists have been fighting long before we came along, but it was it was just so incredible. And you know, the when we looked at the sort of narrative or the arc of the the doc, we we had this idea that we had this happy ending, and my sister would gain access. And the harsh reality has been that still to this day, only a handful. It's I think it's under five still. Uh, patients have access to medical epilepsy Um, and the laws were changed because of um, a little boy um, uh, and his mother who's one of the most incredible activists uh, I've ever come across Um, and his cannabis medicine was seized at London Heathrow and he went into um, status epilepticus where he was having seizure after seizure um and you know in those moments like you you risk your life and he was put into hospital and so the 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 British government was really pushed into into a corner where you know they said okay fine we're gonna we're gonna legalize it and it was almost like they were dangling the carrot and then didn't follow through Mm. and so that has made it incredibly confusing for patients and there are you know there are you know, families that are having to to migrate to places where they where they can access it, and it's also incredibly um, expensive. So, in order to get hold of it now, it's um, available f- on a private prescription. But you're looking at you know uh, over a thousand a month for a prescription. Wow, really? So it's um it's it's really challenging. There are obviously reasons like why. Um, it, it's not available, or at least it, you know, it's not as readily available in in, in the US f- for recreational use. And I I believe in a lot of those those reasons, but I think when it comes to you know chronic conditions um, where it really really could benefit a patient because uh, the medicine that they are already already using isn't efficacious or does come with side effects, like in my case. So in my case, had I not been using uh, medical cannabis, I you know I'd still be taking. The cocktail of anticonvulsants that I was taking before, which did have a lot of negative side effects, and that I continued to have seizures on. Um, so, you know, I always think it's important to say that, like, you know, it's not a panacea. Medical cannabis is a, is a medicine; it should be treated like a, a drug. And, and the way that drugs work is they are effective for some people, and not 
for others. And there are people that I've met with exactly the same type of epilepsy as me, juvenile, myclonic epilepsy and cannabis, you know, hasn't worked in the same way that it has for me. So, you know, it's, it's really just about, you know, we, patients deserve access. Mm -hmm. There there are, there are children who, um, you know, this medicine could, could save their life and it would save also the NHS, you know, a ton of money when it comes to, you know, hospitalizations, you know, people with epilepsy end up in hospital the whole time. Um, and so if, if there is another medicine out there, like how we can deprive children, adults, um, whose condition could benefit from just, it, it doesn't make any sense. And let's not forget that cannabis was, or has been used for millennia, like for a lot of these conditions we talk about, endometriosis, you know, um, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think it comes down to also looking at anecdotal evidence and not just looking at this very rigid sort of double blind placebo controlled clinical trial, like, because that's without getting sort of too technical, that's, that's the way we can only look at specific isolated molecules within the plant, like, you know, just looking at CBD or just looking at THC. And when it comes to some of these more botanically derived ingredients you know people need to use it in a whole plant form and as a result it doesn't really fit the bill when it comes to these sort of um you know i guess sort of rigid ways of 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 going through clinical trials so you know i i hope that that it's going things are going to change um it's it's just incredibly frustrating you know i still find it quite hard to stomach that we were working on this project six years and we're still in the same situation. No, I bet. And it's like, you know, you really hit the nail on the head in in regards to access and this, just the kind of the sheer fact that, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And I've heard that in, in quite a few of the podcasts actually that we've been having. And one in particular stands out where I was talking to a woman who runs an amazing organization in, um, Philadelphia Kensington battling the fentanyl crisis and you know she speaks of this amazing oh like this amazing kind of um clinic that she's built and they're doing you know um you know they're doing yoga and they're doing all sorts of different kind of therapies that actually are only really given to one coming from a privileged background and it's just something as simple as that she's like you know we're we're told that this is the only way that one can get sober and stay sober what we're seeing is actually that's not the case you know there are so many other things that need to be incorporated in making sure that someone stays safe and happy and healthy you know um and that the sad truth is you know you just saying that it's, it costs a thousand pounds you know a thousand dollars whatever it is to be able to access a um, medicinal cannabis is just you know, I feel so lucky that when I was kind of at the beginning of my recovery journey that I was able, because of where, because of my privilege, that I was able to access so many different things that really have most definitely incorporated to me still being, you know, nine years on, st- still mm-hmm. sober and mm-hmm. happier or whatever it is, you know. Which um, is amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, you're a new mum. You recently welcomed your little baby Silver into the the mad old world. So congratulations. <laughs> um thank you. I'd love to hear a bit more about your your pregnancy journey. Thank you. Yeah, it's been 
um a long a long journey and definitely one that having kind of gone through you know multiple um pregnancy losses and now you know being able to to hold my my little boy just I think it it sort of sweetened the deal even more because it is difficult being a mom and it's exhausting I'm, I've definitely never felt this exhausted but um I mean, you know, I think that the love you feel for your child, I remember my mom saying to me, you never, ever, ever know love like it until yeah, you have. Yeah, that's what my mom know? said. She said it was terrifying, though. She was like, fuck, I thought I understood this. Now I've never loved anything more. It's quite it's, scary. It's crazy. It's like, you know, if, like, my husband was just to sort of vanish off the face of the earth. Are you married? I, I married. I haven't done a proper wedding yet, but did a did a small wedding. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, that's so cool! That's weird. Congratulations. Yes. I I feel like it. It makes me feel like a grown up, which I don't really feel like I am. So when I I've I've been struggling with using with using the term husband. Husband. <laughs> yeah, you're like my boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, I do. I I say boyfriend most of the time. He corrects me, but but the the love is just honestly, it's 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 I cannot even begin to articulate it it's I I want to inhale him it's so deep and I feel so so lucky um and I didn't think that I was I was going to get there you know I was on the journey for a good few years um I had uh an ectopic pregnancy um which for anyone that doesn't know what it is, it's when the fetus develops in the fallopian tube and doesn't travel down to the uterus, to the um, womb. Um, and, you know, the baby starts to develop and you're, you risk your tube rupturing, which can be fatal. So it's, um, it's you know, incredibly serious and people don't catch them because you do a pregnancy test, it comes positive. And then a lot of the time, I mean, certainly in the NHS in England, you don't get your first scan until 12 weeks which by then, you know, it, it, it can be too late. Um, and that was, you know, I, I couldn't believe that I was pregnant. I was like, you know, happiest moments of my life. And then after the first scan was in emergency surgery 35 minutes later, um, wow. I had my fallopian tube removed. And then sort of on this journey, you know, trying to get pregnant with with one tube and really severe endometriosis and, so I, I didn't think I'd get there. And then I, uh, I got pregnant again and, and then I lost that one. And I, I think the, the second one was, was much harder just because I, I really thought that it was my time. I just thought, you know, I've, 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 I've put in the work, I've, you know, I've had enough shit piled on my plate and I just thought I really felt like I, I deserved it. And it, and it wasn't my moment. Um, and I think after that, I started to lose a bit of, um, faith and hope in my own body physically and had done years of healing from you know that same kind of idea with with epilepsy always feeling like it was sort of different or defective in some way and and it's really difficult because you know a lot of the time we we spend our whole lives trying not to get pregnant <laughs> and then suddenly, yeah. you know comes a time where you want to get pregnant and you think it's going to happen really easily and there's you know we, we we're never really educated on the sort of fertility like preservation or or anything that we can do beyond just not getting pregnant um, mm -hmm. and and it's uh, it's definitely like a, a lonely journey to be on because it's you know it's it, you're going you go through grief when you lose a baby and I think um 
society does not is not sort of conducive to that that grief oh no 100 percent. I think that's what my sister and I were talking about we were like um that three month and the fact that people only tell people that they're pregnant after three months and we were like oh but we would definitely tell people because what if something happened and I you know massive respect for people who keep it private but we were like we wouldn't want to go through that by ourselves like if no one knew I was pregnant then no one knows that I'm now grieving and so it was just that was our whole take on it it's like oh no we're gonna we're gonna tell everyone because what if something happens which obviously like you know a friend of mine it just happened to her I think it's like one in five something I, I I'm gonna you know shit on that stat there but it's a a stillbirth this the stats are mad it's really it happens all the time really, obviously. Really, really, yeah it's 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 incredibly common and I think you touched upon something really interesting and particularly just because you know you're like not you, you haven't kind of passed through that that journey yet but it's um it's I remember one of my best friends saying to me who's a mom of three and she's one of Silver's godmothers and she said to me just tell the people that you wouldn't mind knowing if you lost it and and that you knew will will support you when mm-hmm, you lose it mm-hmm. and I think you yeah, know that's amazing. so many people yeah that don't do that um and I mean I when I lost my second baby I, I was probably I think one of the hardest moments in, in my life because I I I wanted it so badly for so many years um and and I think because miscarriages are so common as a result, there's a bit of a nonchalant sort of people just brush it off. Oh, my friend had five. Yeah. People will tell you, honestly, people will yeah. say, I'm going to have five. Oh, everyone has mis- miscarriages. Don't worry. At least you got pregnant. Or I mean, it was just before uh, three months. No joke. That's what I was hearing yeah. about this particular yeah. person. I was like, and I'll, I mean, I've just, uh, through this podcast, we've been doing a lot on grief. And so through grief, yeah. we've been talking a lot about like the different um realms of grief and that we've been touching on like abortion and and miscarriages and stillbirth so it's been amazingly educational not that I'm actually someone who's not empathetic towards that having been through my own stuff but like it was it's definitely opened my eyes up to a different way of talking about grief you know but people really don't get that they're like it'll happen the next time or you know yeah I I mean it's honestly it's honestly bizarre I I mean a really and it, I think what's so difficult about it is like you can't curate your environment I just remember that being mm. like I was, would go on Instagram and I think because I was talking about it um you know and the phones are, are listening to us as they do but um I'd go on Instagram, <laughs> every, all I would see was 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 pregnant women and people with babies I just remember be, I'd be like working from my my kitchen table and I'd look out the window and I'm looking at my street in Brooklyn and all I would see would be pregnant women walking down the street it's just like wherever I went it was so triggering and like you know and friends I guess bless them that, that hadn't been through it um just you know just sending me like sort of 20 pictures of their of their babies and it, it was just so 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 triggering and I think um I guess you know when I had the ectopic and and then I had the miscarriage what carried me through were other people's stories um and and I know you felt like that with a lot of you know your journey around kind of struggling with with mental health it's like it is other people's stories who carry you through and that's I think that's why you you go on to sort of 
do perhaps like a lot of the type of work that we're doing in advocacy right it, it's like mm-hmm. and I, I it's funny because you can you can judge yourself a lot like when I made that documentary I kept thinking like people are going to think I'm a narcissist yeah. because I've like so English of you, Chelsea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was agonizing that thought. I had it for so long that people people are going to think that I'm trying to gain like more attention or like things like that. And I think well, what I would always try to come back to is like what carried you through during your hardest moments. And you know, when I couldn't sleep at night, and this was going on for like you know over a year, when I was on my journeys, I would just sit there and I would go on blogs and I would find try I would try to find people who had had endometriosis. Um, with an ectopic pregnancy followed by another miscarriage and then managed to get a baby. Like those were the stories that yeah. carried me through. It gave me hope that like, oh, that could be the case. I mean, that is it, Chelsea. You know, we talk about it at Girls Talk the whole time. It's our like ethos. It's the backbone to everything we do. It's like, you know, there is so much information and 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 statistics and, and, and facts that point to stigma reduction suicide prevention like what it does to hear someone tell a story that resonates with you what it hear what it does to oneself to hear not just a story but one of hope and resilience and how someone got through it um and to hear someone speak from lived experience like it does incredible things to individuals and communities and it's like you know we're so lucky that we can go on like forums and 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 look for communities you know yeah a hundred percent I mean I remember when I was diagnosed with epilepsy when I used to google like the the type of epilepsy I had and I couldn't find anything like, mm. I could not find anything on it and that's why I think I started talking about it because it I just all, I remember all I wanted was a friend who was epileptic. And I never forget when I made my first friend who was epileptic. And now it's so funny because I've started a community and I'm surrounded by and have, you know, access. I just have to go onto my WhatsApp and there I've got, you know, and it feels sort of like everyone has the condition, but I think we have to remember how vulnerable, you know, teenagers are or or not even teenagers, you know, or, you know, women that are trying to get pregnant and and have experienced multiple um, pregnancy losses. And I, I think, you know, I guess one of the, just one of the points I always like to touch on around this topic specifically that I don't think ever gets enough room or or kind of conversation in life is the people that don't get the happy ending Mm. and I think a lot of the time we hear stories like mine you know oh you know this person suffered from an ectopic they lost a tube then they you know had another miscarriage, but then they got the baby or this person did five rounds of IVF and then they got pregnant or you know they did seven rounds of failed IVF and then they got pregnant naturally and what we do is we forget um a community of people that go through years and years and years of trying of loss of IVF you know to the point where they have no money left to spend on IVF and they just they don't get they don't get their baby and they don't get their rainbow baby and I I just think like a society sort of needs to 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 provide more support for those people because that is really, really, really brutal when you just want something so badly and that longing for a child. I just, I can't imagine if I hadn't got my baby boys. So I just always like to sort of like, you know, nod to that community because those people are true warriors. You know, recently I I read an article, I wish I could remember her name, but it was a beautiful article that I read and like maybe it was Vogue or something. And I never buy magazines and I was like flipping through it and it was this girl who was speaking about her abortion and she was speaking about how she really regretted it 
And I thought it was just so interesting because, like, you know, we, we're living at a time where people for, are fighting for their 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 rights and their choice um, over the, 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 the over their own bodies, you know. Um, and it wasn't that she, whilst saying that she regretted it, she was also kind of like obviously really shining a light on the important fact that she was able to make that decision for herself but it just made me think that it's just like we're at a time where we just need to hear stories from like all different types of people like experiencing things in in different ways because it's like you're so right it's but I do I think it those stories of the people who don't have their babies like yes I think we don't hear those because they, they're negative that's what people think that it's negative it's sad it's depressing but actually I think there's so much hope in that because those yeah. people are still on the planet yeah they're still living and breathing and going about their lives we hope you know and there's so much bravery and 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean that's inspirational to me that someone would want something so much in their life not get it and still be there to tell the story, you you know? So I think it's like, we don't hear those stories because it's like, oh, that's a, that's a dampener. That's a, that's, you know, that's bum out whilst, whilst I'm trying to like, you know, live my life and like get a baby. You know, I don't want to hear about people who haven't been successful, but you know, we gotta be, you know, it's, it's that that's the reality. I know so many women who wanted children who don't have them. You're so you know? right. You're so right. No, you're right. And I think also there's just, there's a lot of beauty in sort of, you know, that resilience and what you turn that into, because actually there's a lot of ways that you can use maternal energy and, and you know, apply it to different things in life. And maybe that's how, you know, you mother your friends. Maybe that's how you mother your godchildren. And, um, you know, may, maybe it results in adoption. Like we just, we don't know, but by the taboo nature of these topics and by people not talking about them, all we do is just make people feel you know, more alone, more isolated. There's more shame um, that just seems to kind of sprout out of these issues that we 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 go through. And, you know, it's like, also let's not forget that a lot of this stuff is like living under the patriarchy for so long. Mm -hmm. Like you know, we were told not to talk about it because it was just easier for, for everybody else to deal with. Um, and so, you know, I think that's why platforms like yours are, are so important because you know you have a platform and you're using it positively and you're using it to talk about a lot of these topics yeah all I know is I want to hear all the stories um before we finish I want to I want our community to know a little bit more about Looney um, so Looney's a, a menstrual health and wellness company um which I think um you know I've I've touched upon kind of my story and journey with endometriosis which really was the catalyst for starting um this company and we have been uh, around for just over a year um and we are providing solutions to support people who menstruate um at different parts of their journey um and we have one product uh in in market um which has been formulated by a team of of incredible physicians who have taken a really holistic approach sort of western eastern approach to the formulation and we've done a third party study to prove efficacy and this is a supplement that helps with pms symptoms um specifically low mood um and and so you know we're really 
trying to sort of go after a lot of the um, most prevalent like indications like low mood often people think that it's actually menstrual cramps but in fact it, it is low mood and um and so you know really really focused on 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 body literacy um I think you know again growing up like there's just we weren't taught anything about our, our bodies and you know you only have to sort of go on the journey of trying to get pregnant to realize like wow mm. we weren't even how to read um you know our body um and the signs and um and symptoms that our body gives us when we're ovulating for example you know like people are using apps to tell them when they're ovulating you can't use an app to tell you when you're ovulating you can track your cycle and that's really incredible but in terms of actually like figuring out when you're ovulating you know they're just these like little incredible signs mm. that our, our body us looking at our cervical mucus you know taking our basal body temperature so we're really about empowering um people to kind of get intimate with their natural rhythms um you know we talk a lot, lot about cycle syncing you know how how to to move and exercise depending on where you're at in the month how nutrition can benefit you did you and do really a lot of this stuff when you were where in your on your pregnancy journey I did. I did. I think I started it, I'd say even before really just to help with, with endometriosis and, you know, was frustrated with the only solutions that were offered to me was surgery and birth control. Um, and I had the surgery, which failed me. Um, and so the only other option I was left with was with sort of painkillers or, or birth control. And, you know, I think, uh, birth control, synthetic hormones, an incredible solution and incredible when used for contraceptive purposes. But the problem is, is that you know, we're now using it as a blanket sort of solution to fix acne, to fix low mood, to fix, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's not a, it's not a one size fits all. And so I think it's, it's like, how do we, how do we bring it back to basics and how do we tell people, you know, it starts with just, as we've touched on so many times, education understanding that we have four phases of our cycle and the way that we eat the way that we manage our stress the way that we exercise really all plays a role into like our, our sort of hormonal health so that's a little bit about Looney we've got more products in the pipeline and you know we we've got a really beautiful community online as well to support people at different you know with different sort of menstrual health conditions whether that's fibroids or PMDD or, or PCOS, endometriosis. Um, and we're just developing solutions that are really just more tools in the toolbox um, to help people with their menstrual cycles. So you're a, a new mom and you have tons of projects that you've touched on. How do you turn off and, and take care of yourself? That is a good question. Um, I, I, I naturally I'm not very good at switching off I um it's definitely a, a work in, in progress I think I, I sort of weekly have my husband telling me to sit down and relax because a lot of the times like I I self-soothe by being busy cleaning mm. the house making things that's, perfect yeah. I've realized that's a big problem is like perfectionism oh 100% I was like took a day off well I cancelled a load <laughs> of stuff to sit down that's what I told Eve that I was going to sit down. <laughs> and instead of sitting down, I organized my cupboards, took everything out the cupboards, cleaned the house. The house did not need to be cleaned. I could have just sat down yeah. and watched TV, but instead I didn't. You know what? I think we might be cut from a slightly oh, similar. Oh, 100%. It's impossible. It's impossible. But you know what it is actually? Um, I, I, I work with um, 
a, a healer that for many many years and she often talks about this sort of like really kind of unpacking perfectionism and actually being kind to yourself is actually to trying to do nothing mm-hmm. um oh, I, I, 100% I literally <laughs> no but I think that's it like if I even try to do one thing it becomes like me trying to do it to like perfection or trying to then do 10 million things so like for me sometimes it's literally as simple as just like sitting and not doing anything which is is really which is really great it's like it's 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 like giving yourself permission Mm -hmm. to to not feel like you constantly need to be achieving and I think that's being kind to yourself because it's delayed isn't it when you unpack it you're like why do I feel like I'm not good enough that I have to be constantly doing things like I feel so bad when I had a day where I just did like three things and I feel like I should have done like 20 things but but I guess in in short sort of to answer the question are things that I do to um you know be kind to myself and relax I'd, I'd say cooking and 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 yoga um I'd say those are the, the two things that are kind of nourishing for me when I'm trying to bring the energy down a bit and you know, land the plane as it were. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Chelsea, for taking the time to be on the podcast. I've absolutely loved talking to you. Um, a big reason in kind of like, you know, starting this this new season of the podcast is, is, is not only the storytelling aspect and hearing from people who are continuously speaking from such a vulnerable place, but also I think more importantly, actually, are the ones where I really feel educated on a topic that is often so, you know, it's, it's still so taboo and stigmatised and not that I necessarily am one of those people, but I'm I'm so open to be educated and, and I, I really love the conversations I'm having like this one where I really get to kind of just sit back and really be educated on something that I don't know about. And I really felt that whilst watching the documentary. So thank you to you, thank you to Caroline, thank you to the whole team for giving us this amazing documentary. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Come again. And to all my wonderful listeners and my beautiful community, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And as always, mad, 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 mad amounts of love. Thank you to Chelsea for joining us on the podcast today. You can follow Chelsea at Chelsea Leyland. If you want to watch Sisters Interrupted, you can follow Sisters Interrupted Movie on Instagram for more information. Be sure to check out Looney by heading to www.looney.co. We may have stopped talking, but that doesn't mean you have to. Talk to us on our Instagram at Girls Talk or send us your poetry, essays, stories, artwork, or anything else you want to share at girlstalk.com. This week's podcast was produced by Girls Talk and Wicker Child Studio. Original music composed by Mikey Long. Mad, mad, mad love to Joe Malone London for their generous support of the podcast. And as always, we are always here and we're always listening. I'm Adrua Boa and this was the Girls Talk podcast. <laughs>